0: Thank you for uh, being here. Hopefully we can have an energetic study in spite of uh, probably not feeling as energetic as we uh, are on some days. Uh, but we'll try to uh, do that the best we can. Uh, before we start, uh, let's have a, a word of prayer. Patrick, would you lead us in prayer? Our God, our Father in heaven.
1: We come before you, Father. Humble to know that you are so great, yet you are so good to us. Humble to know that you are so glorious, yet you care for us so much. Father, we love you so much. Father, our request now is that you strengthen us this time that we study. That you help us to be alert and attentive. And that you help us to take in the things that we learn here. And help us to be active in this study. Help us to, help us to look at your work and to actively pursue understanding of it, Father. God, thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you so much for our brother and that we can be here together. That we can come together and learn more about you. There's so much to learn, Father, and we pray that you help us all to understand more each and every day.
0: Thank you so much, God. We love you. It's impressive and Amen. Amen. All right. In John 17, uh, we are looking at this context. Jesus, on his final night, he knew that. Some other people didn't. Was with the disciples. He was eating the Passover meal, evidently, with them, and he instituted the Lord's Supper, though that's not recorded in John. He washed the disciples' feet, and he sent Judas out to do what he was going to do. The other disciples didn't know what that was, but Jesus did. And he has, then, some time with the eleven. And he talks to them about some important things, some things related to his leaving them right away, and uh, some things that he's doing to prepare them for the future, he's coming back. He's also sending the Holy Spirit as a comforter. And and he just gives them a lot of instructions um, and and teaches a lot of things just to the 11 in chapters 14 to 16. And then the last thing he does before he actually goes with them into the garden and the events of that final night transpire is he prays to God, and the 11, and now us, get to listen in. And, you know, Jesus had a prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer sometimes in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, where they ask him, uh, well, in one case, they'd ask him how to pray, uh, and, and also in the sermon, he just teaches them how to pray. But that was kind of him giving the pattern and the outline of how for us to pray. This is more the Lord's Prayer in the sense that this is Jesus talking to his Father at perhaps almost his most critical hour. What would you be saying? If you were Jesus, you know what's about to happen, what would you be asking for? What would you say to your Father in a case like that? It's so amazing to hear the communication between Jesus and his Father at this momentous time. I think we'll learn a ton. You know, probably... I would consider John 17 one of the profoundest parts of the Bible. (coughs) You know, I love studying things like this, and I hate teaching things like this, because this is way deeper and way better than what we can ever talk about. But let's look at it and see what we can get out of it. So, would somebody read John 17, verses 1 through 8? Jesus spoke these
2: things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your words. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me.
0: So, Jesus uh, assumes what posture here as he prays? Yeah, he looks up to heaven. I assume he's outdoors at this point. Uh, we are really accustomed to bowing our head and closing our eyes, but there's no particular logic to that. Maybe there's some good things about that. But it's also very appropriate what Jesus will do looking toward his Father. And uh, always remember prayer is communication. Sometimes we almost think prayer is sort of talking to ourselves. So we sort of get within ourselves and we have a little conversation with ourselves. It's not like that. When you pray, always think about who you're talking to. And talk to him. That's what Jesus is doing. How does he address God? And he says that a lot. You can see the close relationship he has. And he says, Father, the hour has come. Now, do you remember what he kept saying earlier in John? Or what the text keeps saying? The hour has not yet come. That was John 2 and several other passages. The hour has come now. You've been waiting for it. Now it's come. What hour has come?
3: Time for his suffering and sacrifice.
0: Exactly. This is D-Day. This is the hour for him to give his himself up on the cross for us. You know, the hour has come. This is a very powerful passage. You know, in saying that. And so what does he ask God for? If the hour has come, what does he want? Mm-hmm. God to glorify him. God glorify him well what does he mean? does he want what, what does he want God to do?
3: I' talked in the year end today that glory, the true glory of God is not all the magical and wonderful works that he can do but rather his character and his love and his compassion. so uh, how I see it now is that he's asking God to, to show his love for all humanity. Through him. Yes,
0: it is incredible that the glorifying of Jesus is on a cross. He's asking for God to glorify him in helping him serve and humble himself and love others. Jesus looked for glory in the very last place that man would ever have sought it, on a cross. Because for God, the ultimate glory is serving and sacrificing and suffering. We think of glory as status and impressing people and gaining all these exalted honors. But Jesus says the last will be first. He who lowers himself will be exalted and things like that. So when Jesus asks to be glorified, he's asking for just the opposite of what we would have thought about in that. And... uh, you know, I was, I was in a Bible study this week that was really helpful. Uh, Paul Earnhardt was teaching, and, and he made a point that I think is very valid. Do you see Jesus suffering and serving and humbling himself as being kind of like an unusual event in, in, the, uh, in, the, in, in Jesus' existence? Is that, was that kind of a, a strange thing? No, it was not. God has presented himself to us constantly as a servant. Constantly lowering himself to love us and to care about us and, and to, to, to humble himself to, to do things for us. That, this was not like the only time that the Godhead ever suffered and sacrificed to serve. God is love. Not just on the cross But on the cross is kind of like an example of what he's done all along. So Jesus is saying, you know, glorify your son that I may glorify you. Jesus glorifies God by suffering and sacrificing himself on the cross. That is a glory to God. We might not have thought about it that way, but it is. Comments and questions on that first verse? That's pretty profound. He says, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, um, that, to who, to, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now, the verb give is used over and over and over again in this prayer, 17 times, because God is giving. That's the nature of God. The verb that goes with God is to give. So God is. Gave Jesus authority. God gave Jesus these men. And the purpose of God giving these men to Jesus is for Jesus to do what? Give eternal life life to them. So God is giving. Jesus is giving. But what does it mean that he came to give eternal life to them? What is eternal life? that's so true you know eternal life is to know God that's amazing think about how great God must be that eternal life means knowing him that is life there is no life outside of God you know you think about it you think about all the blessings God has given us. You know, do you ever just thank God and start you know counting your blessings? And and you th- one of the blessings God has given us, maybe one of the biggest ones, is He's given us life. There's no life outside of God. And life comes. We might think eternal life means going to a really nice place when we die. Worldly people would think a really nice place that's really elegant and it's got really good fishing or you know something like that no eternal life is being with the lord knowing and being close to him that's what jesus defines as eternal life and jesus whole mission was to make god known so that people could have eternal life by having a relationship with god And that glorifies God when he's able to save men and have this relationship with them. So Jesus giving men the knowledge of God so they can have a relationship with God is the fulfillment of God's whole purpose. He is glorified in loving and saving men. So right here in these first three verses, Jesus has captured almost the depths of this whole plan and of the whole nature of God. That's pretty good in three verses of a prayer, don't you think? Comments and questions through verse 3. Do you think this might teach us something about how shallow our praying is? You know, wow. And then he says, I glorified you on the earth. How did Jesus glorify God on the earth? Being a servant. Yes, being a servant. And what does he say? Having conversation. Accomplish- absolutely. The way you glorify God is you fulfill his mission. You know, Jesus was sent to do a work. When he accomplishes that, God is glorified and honored. Have we had and we've been sent by God to do a work? How do we glorify him? We fulfill the mission God has given. That was what Jesus was all about. Do you see Jesus coming down to the earth and thinking, man, man, what can I get that will make me happy? What can I do that'll be fun here? You ever gone, maybe on vacation somewhere, someplace you haven't <coughs> been before and you may not be again. If you go on vacation, what do you want to do usually?
4: Something pleasurable.
0: Something fun, which we usually think of as. What do you do? What, what do you really want to do that's fun on vacation? Seeing places. See, you know, beautiful sites, tourist attractions, or maybe you want to do some cool recreational stuff or whatever, and, and if you think it's the only time you're going to be there, you know, you've got maybe some, some things. You've always heard about this place. And you want to you do this and this and this there. What if you went and visited New York City? Would be, there be some things you wanted to see? You know, what if you visited, I don't know, something in the like Caribbean or somewhere like that? You know, would there be some things you'd want to do? Jesus is here on the earth. You know, what's he thinking about? Man, I want to do this while I'm there. I want to see that. You know, no, Jesus is thinking, I want to fulfill the mission that the Father gave me to fulfill here. That was his whole point. That's what he lived for. That's what we need to live for. I mean, if you see Jesus' heart and attitude in this, it inspires us to have the same heart and attitude that he had. We were created to glorify God and to fulfill His work. Not to make ourselves happy. You know, do you you ever think that way? Somebody called me up, I'll camouflage this a little bit, but called me up not too long ago. He was doing something. He says, you know, I'm just not having fun. I feel really bad. You know, and I'm like, uh, I don't really care if you're having fun. You know, it's like, that's really not our purpose. I said, what about the people around you? Can you help them have a good time? Can you be an encouragement to them? You know, we think our whole mission in life is to have fun. You know, how can I have a good time? That is not our mission. And I don't think that's what Jesus was thinking about ever on the earth. And so he says, now, Father, verse 5, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was now that really helps you tie all this together what was Jesus existence like, like before Bethlehem equal, equal with, with God. yeah so he was glorious I mean what would it be like to be God in heaven Can you imagine that? What would be the coolest things to you about being God in heaven?
3: All singing.
0: All right, you, see, you know everything. See everything. What else would be really cool about that to you?
4: You
3: do a bunch of really cool
0: stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all power. And, and you can do these things, you know, I mean, you can you can control things, you can bless people, and, and you know, wow. What about the atmosphere? You know, would it be a nice place to be? Would it be encouraging? Would it make you feel good? I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's really hard to even <laughs> relate to that. But it must have been just awesome. And certainly glorious. Wow. Jesus is saying, okay. I've come here. You've given me these people. You've given me this work. I fulfilled the work. Now glorify me on the cross and then take me back and give me the glory that I forfeited, that I gave up to come here. Jesus gave up all kinds of stuff to come here. But he preeminently gave up the glory and the majesty and all that that he had before. He doesn't look really glorious when he's, you know, here on the earth. And so, as Jesus fulfilled his mission... He comes back home. And he prays to God to allow him to retake that position that he'd given up. Comments or questions on these first five verses? Travis?
3: One thing that amazes me is that Jesus, he gave everything to come here. And yet we will give nothing to serve God. We will, we will not sacrifice small Measly things in our life to give God so much, and yet He gave us this.
0: Good point. I mean, if we notice that, almost the key verb in this prayer is "give." God's giving. Jesus is giving. What should our key verb be? Giving. Yeah. What is it usually? Getting. <laughs> Getting. How can I get this? How can? No. Why? And glorifying God is giving. That's what we ought to focus on. We are so selfish. We think about ourselves so much and we want for ourselves so much. If we want to be anything like God, we're giving and serving and sacrificing ourselves and giving up our glory and our status and our pride to serve. And again, you know, this prayer just blows your mind. I mean, I've never even thought about praying a prayer as profound as this. Couldn't do it. Jason? You know, I would
2: say, especially when it comes to our prayers, one of the things that we tend to give the most is lip service. Yeah, like when Jesus says, Father, may I glorify your name, you, know, you, you see that, and he's going to do that. But you know, how often do we in our prayers say, Father, help us to glorify you, help us to honor you? then what do we go
0: and do most of the time nothing so yes we have to really be careful of that. yeah we can repeat the words and have none of the meaning So
3: something that i love about the words of christ he always says the most profound things in quite possibly the fewest words possible
2: <laughs> i mean he,
3: he's he doesn't get wordy ever and it's just so deep and so profound i mean you look at anywhere, like, we read about the woman at the well, I mean, he just, some of the things he said to you, it was really short snippets, but it cuts to the heart quick. Do
0: you have an idea this might not have been the first time Jesus has ever prayed? <laughs> you know, I really believe this is the case. You can listen to people praying, and you can tell usually how much and how well they pray when they're by themselves. You know, you're probably not going to come to a public prayer and it's going to be really great if you're not used to praying a lot. Jesus was. He talked to his Father a lot. And he really has depth in his relationship with his Father. Great example. And just so amazing to see what he's saying here. Peter.
2: It's sort of on the other side, is it—is it inappropriate to say that he was looking forward to the reward? I think he I mean, was looking forward to the reward. You know, we've been talking about the, the giving part and, and he wants to do God's will and finish the work and at the same time he looked beyond it
0: yes he definitely did Hebrews twelve two talks about that but even as he looks beyond it he's not doing that in a selfish sense as he has returned to his glory what's he doing? yes interceding for us serving us I mean being glorified in God as God in heaven means giving and serving and caring and that's, that's what Jesus was looking forward to but very much he was I mean Jesus knew the cross wasn't the end and that was that certainly was a great help and encouragement to him he says look at verse 6 I have manifested your name to the man whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Well, all right, so you've got these men that God gave Jesus. What did Jesus do for them? What did he teach them? Yeah, he taught them God's name. I've manifested your name. So what did he teach them how to spell God?
4: <laughs> right. whenever the Bible speaks of God's name, by
0: saying God's name, he's speaking of who God is and the character of God. Exactly. Jesus' mission with the man God gave him was to reveal God's nature, reveal who God was. And really he did that in two ways. When Jesus takes the man God gave him and manifests God's name, shows them who God really was and is, how did he do it? In great measure, he did it by how he lived and who he was. Because when you see Jesus, you see God. And so Jesus' whole life was a revelation of God. And then he also did it through the specific things he taught them, because he taught them many things about God. So Jesus, in his life and his words, was revealing God to them. That was his mission. That's what he was here for, to show us God. He shows his dependence on God constantly he's saying these are the men you gave me. You know he says in 7 now they've come to know that everything you've given me is from you and the words which you gave me I've given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. Do you see what Jesus was constantly showing his followers that he depended on his father? He says they know that everything you've given me is from you. I didn't ever try to get them to think that it was me. I taught them that the things you've given me come from you and they know it's from you. And, you know, I've given given them the words you've given me and they know that I came from you. And they believe that you sent me. So what was Jesus doing on the earth as he was with the disciples What was he helping them to see? They need to have the same kind of trust. trust. But what's he really doing here? How would you summarize what he's doing as he he reveals this to the disciples? (laughs) What's he getting them to see? God. God. And that the source of everything is God. And that everything he has and everything he does comes from God. He is not getting them to focus so much on himself. He's getting them to see, it was you that sent me. Everything comes from you. He's getting them to glorify God. Now, if Jesus did that, what should we be doing? If anybody had the right to try to just sell himself and impress everybody with himself. Wasn't it Jesus? But what's Jesus concerned to do? I made sure they know it comes from you. I made sure that they know that you gave all this. He's constantly glorifying his Father. Isn't that what we have to do? Forget yourself. Don't try to impress people with you. Don't try to get them to think, oh, look at the great things you are. Constantly show them it's from God. Because if... Jesus had all this glory really himself but he doesn't use that he glorifies his father we don't even have any glory if if everything Jesus had came from his father how much more everything that's, that's any good at all about us comes from God we it is just such a shame when we try to compete with God for glory he deserves it. We deserve none. You know, remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 or 5? We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. So this is just amazing. It's amazing how much Jesus showed them about God. Thoughts and comments on these first eight verses? That is one amazing prayer, even if it had stopped right there. But thank, thankfully, it doesn't stop there. That's the part that more or less Jesus prays related to himself, although that stretches it. It's really related to the disciples. But now, he really prays for them. This The, the next part of the prayer focuses on the 11. And wow. You know, would you... Again, try try to think about this. You know, in hours, Jesus is going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested by a big brawling band of soldiers. He's going to be taken to outrageous injustice in courts that had no shred of honesty. He's going to be spit on. He's going to be scourged. He's gonna have a crown of thorns pounded into his scalp. He's going to be mocked and ridiculed. He's going to have the spikes driven through his hands and his feet and hung up to suffocate on the cross. They're going to jeer him and my head. Come down from the cross, we'll believe in you. He's going to have one of his closest friends say, May God damn my soul if I even know that name. He's going to have the others just go AWOL, leave him at his time of greatest need. He knew all this. And he's going to drink the cup of wrath in our place. He knew that was all going to happen in these next few hours. And he dedicates the biggest part of this prayer to praying for them, not for himself. Do you ever get in a situation where you think, look, I am suffering so bad. And things are so hard for me right now. I just can't think about other people. I am, I need help right now. I'm just, it's so hard for me. Well, listen to Jesus, 9 to 19.
5: Ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me for they are yours and all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine and I have, glorified, I have been glorified in them I am no longer in the world and yet they themselves are in the world I come to you Holy Father keep them in your name the name which you have given me that they may be, that they may be one even as we are while I was with them I was keeping them in your name which you have given me and I have guarded them and not one of them perished but the son of the uh, perdition so that the scripture will be fulfilled. But now I come to you and, this, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have joy and may in them themselves. I have given them your word and the word world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even so I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself and then themselves also
0: be sanctified in truth. Wow. I ask on their behalf, not for the world. Does that strike you as a little strange? He asked for his own, these 11 that he's talking to, but he doesn't ask on behalf of the world. Why not? you're in the world not of the world Yeah, why didn't he ask for the world because the world rejects God what's the world going to have to do not be the world anymore that's the only hope for the world is to quit being the world now he's going to pray for the ones who in the next section who will come out of the world to him there's there's nothing to pray for for the world as the world because if it stays the world There's nothing. So the only hope is for them to quit being the world. But right here, he's focused on these people that he loves. um, For those that God has given him. And he says, this is an amazing statement in verse 10, all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. I've been glorified in them. What sane man would ever pretend that he was co-owner with God of everything that exists? You know, all of your things are mine and mine are yours, but that's the kind of relationship, the union of the Father and the Son. And so, on the basis of that, Jesus asks for these people. Now, he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are. That's kind of the reason why he asks. I mean, while Jesus was here in the world, think about the things he could do for them, but he's leaving the world. He won't be with them any longer. And so they're going to be left without his personal presence. And so on that basis, he especially pleads with God for them. I'm not going to be there. So I, But they are. They're not going to leave the world like I am. So I'm praying for them. Now, what would you pray for? You love these 11. You gave yourself to them. You care about them. What do you pray for them? What do you pray for those you love the most? I have to go through yeah, freedom from problems, family problems, economic problems, health problems. What else might you pray for them? They remain faithful. They remain faithful. What else?
2: They're about to go through a lot
3: of pain and a lot of confusion. Be with their minds, be with their hearts.
0: You know, I want you to think about some of the things that Jesus does not pray for them. He loves them, but he doesn't pray for their riches. He doesn't pray for their life. He doesn't pray for their position, for their health, for their family. You know, he doesn't pray for exemption from trial and difficulty. He doesn't pray for them to be spared disappointment. He doesn't pray for them to have bigger churches and more converts. He doesn't pray for their success. He doesn't even hear pray for their forgiveness. He doesn't pray a lot of things. We might think about praying. Now, not all of those things are wrong to pray for. And some of them we've got examples of praying for. But it's interesting when he, he's just, you know, this is maybe his last major prayer for them before he leaves. What's on his mind as he's thinking about them? Amazing that he's even thinking about Well, what's he praying for? Well, he says, I'm no longer in the world, verse 11. Yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given me. And I guarded them, and only Judas perished. So he wants God to do what for them? What does He want God to do for them? Keep them. Keep them faithful. Keep them close to you. Protect them from spiritual harm. Jesus has kept them. He's been faithful to the task. And He's kept all of them except the son of lostness. He lost Him. But the scripture already said that He would go away. You know, the Not everybody can be kept. Not everybody is willing to be kept. Judas went to his own place, Acts 1 says. Judas, in spite of spending so much time with Jesus, in spite of evidently having a lot of financial ability, in spite of Jesus loving and caring about him, Judas turned away. And Judas, he was the son of lostness. There are some that in spite of all Jesus and God will do, because God has given them free will, will leave. And they'll be lost. Now God overrode Judas's evil intentions to bring about some good in what he did. But, but Jesus lost Judas. But it wasn't Jesus' fault. It wasn't that Jesus didn't keep him. It. It's that some people refused to be kept. So that was Judas' situation, but everybody else that God gave him, Jesus kept. Well, he was with them, but now he's leaving and he wants God to keep them, hold them, don't let them get away, don't let them fall, keep them in your name, keep them by who you are and keep them close to you verse 13, why does Jesus want them to be kept? So they think he experienced the
1: joy of the cross experience.
0: Yes! Not so that his stats on you know, faithfulness will be high. Not so that he can brag about all the ones that have been kept. But he wants their joy to be full. And their joy is full as they are kept close to the Lord. That's the fulfillment. That's what we really, that's what helps us so much. That's what he wanted for them. We might not think that it's such a great joy to be kept close to God. But Jesus knows and that's the greatest thing that we could ever have. And he also prays. For something else that he's concerned about. Now, maybe, maybe before I say that, let me say it this way. In verse 14, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now. If you're asking God to keep them, you think there's some kind of danger. And the danger he presents here is what danger? Spiritual danger that, that comes as a result of what? Yeah, the evil one. But what, what's he worried about? His absence. His absence, and what else is he worried about here? They're in the world. world. Now, why would it be a problem for them to be in the world? It It might rub off on them. Well, what's wrong with that? Yeah, we're not of the world. We're not to be of the world, but when we're in the world, there's so much danger that the world will contaminate us, and it will shape us and mold us and influence us and hurt us. He's really worried about the influence of the world on them. Do you have that problem? Isn't that a challenge for us? We're in the world, but we're not of the world. are not supposed to be of the world. That's a challenge. How much are we influenced by the people around us and by the values and the culture and uh, you know fitting in and, and trying to be accepted? Jesus is worried about that. Have you ever been for any... Some of, a few of you have. Have you, have you ever been for an extended time to a foreign country? A few of you have. What do you suppose that feels like? Foreign. Foreign. Yeah, Ryan was there. <laughs> Tell us about it, Ryan. How is it?
3: and uh, sometimes just overwhelming everything's completely different, especially the language, that's one of the most apparent things.
0: So how does it make you feel about yourself?
4: Like I don't belong?
1: Out yes! Of the moment.
0: You don't fit in! You know, I knew the language, I got better and better at it, Ryan wasn't bad at it either. Uh, but the whole time I lived in Brazil, for three years, I, I wrote this to some guy, I don't even remember who, somebody I had a contact with, who was a missionary in somewhere in Eastern Europe. And, he, and when, I, when I wrote it, he wrote back and he said, you're exactly right. I said, I always feel like a fish out of water. I always feel different. I always don't feel like I belong here. I'm one of these guys, I really am not a pioneer. I, I don't like things outside of what I'm accustomed to. And being in Brazil for three years was probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. You just never really feel like you're a part of it. I love the brethren there. And I care a lot about them. But being, trying to be a Brazilian when you're an American, for me, was very difficult. We've got to have that same mentality about this world. We can't fit in. We don't belong. We should never feel like We are apart. We've got to have a different way of life, a different speech, different manners, different culture, different dress. We need to have a special feeling for those of our fellow Christians in this alien, hostile culture. There's something that I thought was cool. You probably won't, but I'm going to read this anyway. This is old English. You know, not old, old English. But I don't even know where I got this. But I think this is, even though it's expressed in kind of antiquated language, is good. Strangers and pilgrims are known by their language and the country through which they are passing. It is different from that which is spoken around them. The tone is quite different. Yeah, and the dress, too. (laughs) Therefore, they're oftentimes a gazing stock to those among whom, for a short period, their lot is cast. Their manners, too, are different. You at once perceive it, it strikes you immediately. You would never take them for inhabitants of the land in which they are strangers and pilgrims, never. They could not be mistaken for a single instant. How is it with ourselves? Are we strangers and pilgrims in this world? Is our language different? Our manner different? Our attire different? Is it impossible for us to associate with men of the world without their finding out that while we're in the world, we're not of it? If a stranger and pilgrim in a far-off land meets a fellow citizen by the way, one speaking the same language, wearing the same attire, evidently by his manner belonging to the same country as himself, how delighted he is. What sweet intercourse they enjoy. Imagine yourself in a distant land, far away from all home associations, among utter strangers whose ways and tastes and manners and language were utterly foreign to you. Imagine meeting one of your own there. How you would embrace, how you would hold him fast. How soon you would make him a companion of him you could not do otherwise. How is it with ourselves? When we meet the children of God here on the earth, are they our choice, our delight, our companions? Isn't that good? We've got to have a stranger and pilgrim mentality. Jesus said they are in the world, but not of the world. Could he say that to us? I mean, so often, we're so of the world. Sometimes we get to the point where where we don't fit in is with the Christians. And we have to put on a front and act like we're spiritual. Jesus is concerned. He asked God to keep them because they're in the world. They're in enemy territory. They're in a hostile environment. And he's afraid that the world will break them down. We are are in. A very bad place for Christians. <clears throat> we need to strengthen our bonds with God and with each other. We've got to be really scared and beg God to keep us in the world. Do you, do you feel like it's a maybe a little surprising that he didn't ask God to take them out of the world? Wouldn't that have been safe? <laughs> wonder why he didn't. Christians because he the world. So why does he keep us here? We've got a mission here. The work God gave us to do involves the world. It's the arena of our service. You know, a hostile world may not be the most receptive audience, but they're the people who need to hear. He purposely didn't ask God to take us out of the world because the world needs us. And because this is where we serve God and where we glorify God and where the world needs to see us being different and being godly. Being lights in a pitch black world. But now if we're of the world, what good are we? If the salt loses its saltiness, it doesn't help any. When you just fit in. When you just act and live and talk like the world, you don't help the world at all. Our whole mission depends on us being God's men and God's women in a foreign culture and not being ashamed of it. You think, well, if I start talking about God, people will think I'm weird. They really will. That's exactly what they need. If I live like this, and I talk like this, and I dress like this, and I act like this, I won't fit in. Amen, you won't. And that's exactly what they need. A few <coughs> will realize there's something there. And I want it. <coughs> Seth?
3: How do you balance this with the the desire and longing to for Jesus to come back? How, how do you... The, Balance the mission that we have against the reward that, that I'm looking forward
0: to? One thing is the Lord's will be done. It may depend on where we are spiritually. Paul balanced it in Philippians 1 by saying you need me more than I need to be with the Lord. I hope I can stay. Other comments. Jason.
2: This goes back a little bit to um, chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, where you know, Jesus is saying that the world hates you because you know, it hated me. He you know, was talking to his, his brothers, his especially brothers, he said, Well, the world hates me because I tell them the ways are bad. You know, we are being the kind of examples that we need to be in doing things that we need to do in the Lord's service, you know, the world's not going to love us. But Jesus says in John 15, that the <coughs> world loves you, the world loves their own. And so the world loves us and doesn't hate us. We need to really look at what we're doing.
0: Excellent point. Amen. Patrick.
1: Um, one thing that's really, really cool about this, and you brought it out, um, how Jesus' primary concern is their relationship with the Father. Um, I mean, and we we have concerns for for those who we love. I, I mean, they're genuinely good concerns a lot of the time. Like, um, we want you know we want good families, we want strong churches, we want everyone to get along. And, and when we're praying for brethren, we're praying you know that things can go well with their families or or, or whatever the case may be. Um, but Jesus' priority. First and foremost, as a father, sometimes I think we get so caught up in the particulars of, of, of life, I guess, we forget to put that spiritual relationship with the father first. I don't know, does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. Sometimes we might most want for our brethren that they be happy, that they be successful. What Jesus most wanted for them is that God keep them, <laughs> they be with Him. <laughs> You know, it doesn't make a lot of difference whether we're happy or whether we feel successful. It makes a lot of difference whether we're kept by God. That was the top priority. Logan?
4: So many times I find whenever we're talking about this about doing the world's work and being alive, sometimes whenever we do that, we try and just uh, do just enough to make ourselves feel justified, and then we want to back off. But you know, I've been studying some recently in Acts and what you see whenever you study what the Apostles and the Brethren did in Acts is that they went about the war's work without any strength whatsoever. I think we need more of that in our lives to be able to <coughs> just push ourselves to do everything we possibly can in the service.
0: Amen, Lord. Peter. Yeah, that
2: that's sort of how I was thinking. A lot of times it, it's a weakness with me. I just don't want to be bothered. Because it takes effort. And, and it's an other's focus instead of a self-focus. I may not be attracted by the world, but I don't particularly want to go help them either.
0: <laughs> yeah, sometimes we would rather just kind of be uh, in our monastery yeah. and close off. <laughs> what if Jesus had done that? <laughs> wow, I mean, Jesus became one with us, and yet he was willing to be totally spiritual, righteous, holy, in this corrupt place. I mean to love the world but not be of the world at all. That's amazing. Jesus is a great example of that. That's exactly what he did. He's praying for us to be who he was. Shane? I think
4: something that kind of strikes when you said, you know, he just didn't want us to be happy and a lot of we do, we want our brethren to be happy. But then again, the opposite extreme is he didn't just say, well, this is the way to deal with it. He sympathizes with us. and goes through that a lot in Hebrews. The idea that he has gone through what you've gone through, he feels your pain, and he sympathizes with you. Um, but then again, he doesn't sympathize so much that he takes away what's best for you, as we see in 1 Peter 1. The fact that these trials are going to purify. Them. And he knows for well that as much as he loves the disciples, as much as he loves the apostles to be, that he knows that for them to be what he needs them to be and to, and to be the foundation that he needs them to be, they must go to these things. I think the great thing about our God is, and I, and I fall into this a lot of times when talking about it, either I'm talking either I'm overly sympathetic or I'm overly harsh. It's hard to find the balance. Because sometimes I'll say, well, you, you, know, you, made, you made a mistake, get over it. This is a consequence, just deal with it. But often that's not the right way to handle it. And then again, I can't say, well, I, I understand, you, know, you didn't do anything wrong. But Christ has that perfect balance. He loves them, but knows for what they must be doing, and he knows that even though he wants to, in a way, I guess not to be happy, but to be content, and he wants what's best for them, he knows what's best
0: for them. Best for them. Amen. Mm-hmm. Very good. Caitlin. I
6: think we had a tendency to go to one or two extremes, and we kind to touch on, on both of them, but with um, this... Either, either on the one hand, you know, you see that we're not supposed to be of the world, so we want to go and hide and be in our own little hole and try, to try and stay away from the world much as possible. And obviously, I think that's all like you said, I mean, what Jesus did that with us, I I think the other extreme, though, sometimes we go to the other extreme, you know, we know that we're supposed to love the world, so um, so we go and we fit in with him and whatever, and, and we try and adapt you know, their sort of lifestyle, even when they're doing things that are wrong. And, and I don't think you see that with Jesus either. I mean, you know, people that were pretty people, but I don't, I don't imagine they were out, like, partying while Jesus was around and that sort of thing. It seemed like Jesus changed them when he was around them. so I think that's kind of the way that we should be too
2: to really be careful of those two extremes.
0: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, do you see Jesus, for example, what sometimes we tend to do? Do you see him kind of playing down this stuff about God so that he doesn't turn them off? You know, do you see him kind of, uh, you know, doing some kind of shady, questionable stuff so he kind of fits in with them better because he really wants to help them? No, he wasn't like that. I mean, you ever see Jesus at a time that he's not talking about God and he's not calling men to repentance? Now, he did become one with us. And he shared with us many things, but never our sins. And always calling men to God. Really, I mean, in all of this prayer, Jesus is so much praying for us to be what he was. Look at Jesus and be as he was. It's an amazing prayer. And again, may I remind you, He's hours from all that he was going to go through. How could he even have a thought about them? I am just, it's just amazing to me that Jesus was not self-focused. He's done everything for them. He's done everything to fulfill his Father's mission. He is worried about them. Now it goes one more step here. Look at this. It's not just keep them. You know, although that's a big thing. But sanctify them in your truth. Thy word is truth. Verse 17. Sanctify them. Separate them to you. Prepare them and help them to be your special people in the world. Don't just keep them, but sanctify them, transform them, and use them. And how does God do that? In the truth. Your word is truth. We are transformed and made God's special holy people by the working of his word in our lives. What was the goal of Jesus for his men? His goal was not just forgiveness. His goal was sanctification. His goal was transformation to be useful tools in his service. That's what he wanted for them. Father, keep them and sacrifice. Make them special holy people who serve you. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. They've got a mission. You gave me a mission. I'm giving them a mission. So so that's just amazing. You know, because we go a step beyond keeping them. Jesus is concerned about their security, their spiritual security. Don't let the world overtake them. Don't keep them and and protect them from those evil influences, but sanctify them and use them. I'm sending them out. They're not aimless. They've got a purpose to do the work of God in the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Wow. You know... It's just I, I can't help but keep saying this prayer is so much deeper than what, what I am. But, but you think about that God, Jesus' goal for us was not just to forgive us, to relieve us of our burden, and to keep us from going to hell. His goal for us was not just to make things okay for us so we could be back with God again and we could be okay and we'll be in heaven. Jesus' goal for us was that we be God's transformed instruments in the world to fulfill God's mission as he had fulfilled it. Jesus' goals for us are so much higher than our own. You know, he goes a step... Sometimes we like... You know, when you think about ourselves or other Christians, the thing you most want is just for, well, I want them to be okay. I don't want them to sin. I don't want them to go to hell. You know, so if, if they can just be okay, then that'll be great. Jesus was more than that. Sanctify them. Make them holy. Make them yours. Use them on this mission. So think about it. God doesn't just want us to be justified. He wants us to be transformed. Comments and thoughts, Jason.
2: I think we see pretty really interesting thing here. Is, you know, God's word has this power to really divide and to separate, and those who really want to serve God and those who do not. I think one example we see within the Book of John is John chapter six, know, Jesus had this humongous following because of um, his dividing the loaves and the fishes, and but once he saw their motives and he decided to see some of the harder things to receive, and his words separated those who truly wanted to be his disciples
0: from those who did. not Good point. So he's trying to get a group of men that really are mission worthy. Yeah. Other thoughts? JD. Uh, it
3: just makes sense if Jesus is so concerned with the Father's glory and that is what he wants his house to be used for. Um, not, like you said, he, he, he wants so much other, so much deeper things for the glory of the Father. Because that's what he's concerned with.
0: You want to think about this. As we are reaching out and trying to help each other and trying to help people in the world come to the Lord. Our goal is not to just get them in and make sure they stay in. Our goal for them is that they be useful instruments in God's hand and they fulfill the mission. We've got to go one step beyond in our work with each other. We're not just trying to keep each other safe. We want to help each other. We pray to God for each other that we can be sanctified and sent out. I
2: think part of Part of what helps Christ be so focused on others here uh, is his joy. Uh, in in verse, verse 13, like we talked about earlier, you know, he, he wants to be drawn close to God. And he, he finds his full satisfaction in fulfilling his mission. And he wants others to do the same. He wants others, he, he doesn't, as we already commented on, he doesn't pray for their happiness. He doesn't pray that they be happy people because that, that, that's, a, that's a condition based upon their circumstances. He wants them to have a character trait of joyfulness and pursuing the Lord and pursuing holiness so that, they can, so that they can be closer to God.
0: Ironically, we are the most joyful when we forget ourselves and give ourselves completely in serving and glorifying God. It's so ironic because we do counterintuitive things. We do the very things that seem like they would make us miserable. But those are what give us true, deep joy. We're not seeking anything for us. We're seeking to serve and to glorify God. I do not remember. What time is this whole session supposed to be over? Noon. Noon. Okay. 1130? 1230? 1230. Okay. All right. Other comments or questions to this point in the prayer? Go ahead and do the last section of the prayer, which goes one step beyond. You know, to me, Jesus, if you can say this, not exactly, but in 1 through 8, he prays for himself. In 9 to 19, he prays for these disciples. But in 20 to 26, he goes one step beyond that. So 20 to 26.
6: Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me. and I in thee, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou givest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and thou hast loved them, and thou hast loved me. Father, 23?
0: 226. 26.
6: Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which Thou hast given me, for Thou loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known Thee, but I have known Thee, and these have known that Thou hast sent me, and I have declared unto them Thy name, and it will declare it. That the love therewith, that the love therewith, we have loved, have loved Thee in me and them, and I in them.
0: So, Jesus prays for us and prays for those that we share the message with. Don't ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Now, what's going to cause people in the world to believe in Jesus? Hearing the word. You know, in this, he says, the word, what they teach, that's the means of bringing them to the faith. Which, there is no substitute for God's message in bringing people to believe in Jesus. That is vital. The apostolic teaching is the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2, <laughs> Revelation 21. And so it's through the word that these people in the world are going to be brought to Jesus. So what do you do? When you got a non-Christian and you want to help him, you teach him the word. I mean, I, you know, sometimes we do all kinds of strange things. We think in strange way. Well, I, 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 there's this person and I really want him to come to Christ. I'm going to really try to hang out with him all the time and be be a really good friend to him and I'm going to tell him how great our church is and how he just love it and how there's so many friends there he could have and it'd just be so cool for him and all that do you see a a kind of an omission in that you know he starts thinking wow this friend is cool I like this friend I want to hang out with this friend And boy there are some nice people there I want to hang out with them and so, well, you know, it'd be cool. They, they just do some really cool stuff down there. It's kind of entertaining. It's fun. And, you know, I'm kind of looking for some people to, to hang out with. And what do I do to join? Do you see how there's kind of a, a, a big thing missing in that? You know, you believe through the Word. You know, I, it's not bad to be friends with people. And, and as long as we're not compromising in our friendship. But, but the thing that we have to prioritize is we, others come to Christ through the Word. So the thing we know, mostly need to be doing is saying, uh, you know, can I read the Bible with you? What, what about our, our sharing together in the Lord's Word? And we keep showing them the Word. That's what, that's what builds us up in Christ. And it's what takes a non-Christian and brings him to Christ. They believe through your word. So, that's who he's praying for. The ones who've come to faith by their teaching them. Now, what does he pray for these people? For unity. That they all be one. Now, what's the model of unity that he says? is Jesus and his Father. Wow. He says, that's what I want for them. My goal for those who come to believe through the word word, is that they be as united to each other as I am to you, God. That is an amazing degree of unity. That's what he wants for us. Wow. That's a lot. And then he tells us why. So the the world may believe that you sent me. What is the world going to think when they see us quarreling and arguing and fussing and feuding and fighting? (coughs) We sure don't look like people who follow Christ when we do that. The thing that will really be a help to their seeing Christ in us is when we love each other. When we're united with each other. It is amazing how much we violate that sometimes. I can remember, I don't know that preachers say this much anymore, but I can remember as a kid hearing preachers talk about how, you know, what a terrible influence parents have on their children when on the way home from church what they have to eat is stewed preacher and fried brethren. (laughs) Isn't that what we do? Sometimes. We run brethren down. We fight and fuss. We don't love each other and aren't united to each other. We try to divide and separate. We're a little better than they are. You know, we find ourselves with all these conflicts and bitterness and, and tensions and animosity. That is contrary to Jesus' prayer. He wanted us to be how united? As united as the Father and the Son are. That's what He wants for us, is that we be, have that much love, that much closeness, that much concern for each other. And when we let... The stewed preacher and the fried brethren, and the constant rivalries and competitions and smugness and bitterness divide us. We are flying right in the face of what Jesus begged for right before he died. Or maybe for us, it's not so much that, it's just we don't have much relationship. You know, sometimes the opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is indifference. You know, we go through our life, we're focused on our school and on our physical family and on our jobs and on our hobbies and on our Xboxes and on our whatevers. And brethren just don't much enter into that picture. Oh, there's a couple of brethren I have a lot of fun with. But as far as the close unity in Christ, it isn't there. If we're going to be one like this, we've got to share the Lord together. There's no other way to do that. We've got to care about each other. And we've got to really develop a bond between us and the Lord. That's what he prayed for. Would that be what you'd pray for? I mean, if you had prayed for those who would come to believe, would that be what you would have prayed for? And he doesn't just drop it there, does he? The glory which you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. He just doesn't let that one go. He, do you think he thought it was going to be hard for us to have this degree of unity? That we're going to have a hard time having this perfection as being in one another and loving and caring for one another? We need to repent and, and, and unite and work together and love one another and stomp out, as the Hebrew writer says in chapter 12, the root of Bitterness. We need to have, you know, we're like, well, I, you know, I don't have anything against those people. I don't want to do anything with them. I don't want to see them. I don't want to talk to them. But I I have nothing against them. I'm fine with them. You know, I don't really want to be on the same pew. But then they're fine. You know, that's not what he's talking about. Or he's not talking about. Well, we go to church together. You know, we show up the same building kind of randomly about three times a week. But my life is everything else. You know, he's asking for a much greater degree of closeness. And did you notice what he says in the end of verse 23, which is probably one of the most amazing things he ever says? You, You just would not think this could be true. He says so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. God loves us. Just like he loves Jesus. Did you know God loved you that much? How much did God love Jesus? If you're someone who will come to believe through their word, he'll love you as much as he loved Jesus. And we need to love each other as much as he loves us and Jesus. Comments and questions through 23. Shane. I think that
4: Sometimes we get caught up in the Romans 14 and and personally, you know, my conscience allows me to do some things that I can do, my conscience might allow you to do those things. And oftentimes we just get conflicted about that. And we fight over it and we fight over it and fight over it. And it it compromises what Christ wants to learn from the messages like each. The love that we have for each other. And the fact is that even if we have to do things differently, and obviously we can't go past all this all weak we state that. But I've seen more, more people, more churches, more relationships destroyed over things that don't matter. The smallest of things that either I've been, in, I've been embarrassed or, or my view isn't shared by the same person. So, therefore, I can't associate with them. Or, therefore, I'm not going to be as close to them as I was. And it just destroys exactly what Ephesians 4 says.
0: And mostly that's not our problem. Mostly our problem is just selfishness and pride and bitterness and, you know, hurts you know, I mean, it's a little more understandable when there's some difference. because there's not almost nothing, nothing that matters. It's just that we are self-seeking. Jason. Yeah, you know, just what you're saying.
2: All it is real, division, it's just utter selfishness on our part. Yeah, you know, we don't. We tend to forget the fact that you know, we are all part of the Lord's body. And you know, just trying to keep that picture in mind. You know, we too often want to stomp on our own toes or tear off our arms. You know, that's the kind of picture that we see here. The Lord wants us to realize, you know, in verse 21, He says, that "We're just as well, He is in the Father and the Father is in Him, you know, we need to have the kind of idea that, you know, these are, these brethren are part of us. And you know, we need to, you know, just as Paul says, more. They more and have joy as they have
0: joy. We need to let their we have to let them to be like out of us. That is pretty amazing, isn't it? If we think of ourselves as being one body, why are so we intent on maiming ourselves? You know, we need to have more of that body imagery. Patrick.
1: Um something that I see. We need to make unity such a huge priority. Um, I mean, if, even if we are to have a conflict with a brother, we need to resolve that immediately. We can't let something like that lie. Um, it is ridiculous to let some conflict go unresolved. And so we need to labor and have enough love to to resolve that. And I guess, I mean, even if there is a conflict, some, when I've been in conflict with, with a brother or whatever, I don't want to tell people about it. I don't want others to know that because I don't want people to take sides. I don't want any division to come from any conflict that may arise. And we need to have, and I need to work on that even more, but we need to have an attitude that no matter what my desires are, I have to make sure that my actions can't bring about greater division.
0: So we've got to get over our hurts and our slights and our selfishness. And what about being united with the brethren you don't like very well? Usually we're okay with our best friends. (coughs) Seth?
3: Um, In verse 23, the idea of being made perfect or complete. Realize that if we're not unified with our brethren, we're incomplete. We're not perfect. And there's no such thing as a half-Christian. And it, this isn't just a suggestion or a friendly reminder. This is something that we've got to do.
0: Amen. Great point. He goes on. Good, Jason.
2: Yeah, sometimes we just tend to think that you know, even if like he was against brother or brother against us, if we're not fighting about it, we have unity. Like, yeah. that's really not the case at all. And if there's anything that's causing any trouble between us, we do not have unity. And Jesus says in one of the other Gospels that if you know that your brother has something against you, as you take your gift to the altar, you (coughs) lay your gift down and go make things right. God doesn't even want us to come before him and worship him if we hate our brother that we do see. Amen. Amen.
0: 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. So that they may see my glory which you've given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. So what does Jesus most want for us? He wants us to be able to be with him where he is. And to be able to behold his glory. That must be awesome. That's the highest aspiration he has for us. What he begs finally for the, from the Father is that they, we could be with him where he is and see his glory. I have no idea what that's going to do. Can you imagine one day being with him where he is and seeing his glory? That's going to be the most incredible, overwhelming thing. That's what he asked for. J.D.? Is this
2: this talking about heaven?
0: I think so. Okay. I mean, you know, it's talking about being with Jesus where he is now and seeing him in his glory that he has now. Okay,
2: so it's where he is now, not
0: where he is when he's I think so. saying this? I think so. They are with him where he is right now, in a sense. Okay. But I think he's praying beyond that. Okay. He's praying that he re-received the glory he'd given up when he came here. So I think when he says that they behold his glory, my glory. He's talking about the glory he's going to receive back when he goes back to heaven. Pretty amazing. (laughs) Pretty amazing just the depth of all that. He says, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I've known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I've made your name known to them. And will make it known so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. That's it. Wow, those two verses kind of summarize this thing, don't they? You know, he has, what what Jesus did in his mission was to reveal the Father. So that you've got this love that God had for Jesus. Jesus revealed the Father to them so they could have that same love in them so that Jesus himself could be in them. Wow. You know, it's kind of like when you you read this prayer and you think about it, kind of going into the Holy of Holies. (laughs) You know, this is, wow, this is what Jesus said to his father. Can't you tell? This was not something dumbed down for us. This is, this is, this is the profound communication of Jesus and his Father. And uh, it should inspire us. You know, we, we need to meditate on this and, and really try to understand deeply what Jesus is saying. Comments and thoughts? you really seeing his
2: prayer, his desire for God's will. Yeah, we, we pray, Lord, we want your will to be done, but
0: she's to even do after this to make sure that happens just wow yes definitely that's a lot to think about you know I really appreciate it excellent attention really uh, you know a tremendous passage I love the passage but like I say it's it's really you cannot possibly do justice to it talking about it and teaching it But remember this chapter and keep going back to it. I think it would be good for us to take a, a break for a few minutes, and then we'll come back and work on chapter 18.